with a second uh, session this morning on um, church history, trying to um, make the topic as engaging and as interesting and as possible. Uh, some people may have different reactions to, to the study of history. I, for one, love it uh, because it provides perspective and context on who we are as a people. It helps me understand my identity. And so we sort of come to the, the study, at least that's what I hope we come to the study with. Also, we stated last time, just to cultivate an appreciation for our uh, forefathers and foremothers who have suffered, died, and bled for the spread of the faith uh, of uh, faith in Christ over the years. And this morning, uh, last time, we, we covered the very early parts of the church, the start of the church. This morning, we're going to move into a uh, kind of a second period, which is the post-apostolic age, and it's going to cover a sweeping 200 years. It's very hard in a 45-minute class to really do justice to any of this, so we have to be very kind of strategic in the way we, the subjects we pick out and, and what we look at. But um, that's where we're headed this morning. Uh, we've entitled it The Story of the Church Through Time and looking at the witnesses of those who have gone before. Uh, this morning we will be looking at the martyrs in this post-apostolic age. Uh, on up to the age of Constantine, it covers about the year 100 uh, on up into the to the year three, roughly 325. Let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for our worship service. Would you teach our hearts from it, and would you be with us now as we consider those whom you have called to be our fathers and mothers in the faith? The, the sacrifice, the devotion, the teaching that we now stand as recipients of. We thank you for them, those that we will discuss, and those that will be left undiscussed this morning as our fathers in the faith. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, here we are. Uh, we're on the second session uh, we did uh, we did an introduction uh, last time, um, and this was uh, so. I'm still in a uh, part of doing this. I'm still trying to figure this app out a little bit, so this may be it comes in a little messy. So no problem. We will work through that. Uh, just as a reminder, we're talking about church. History. We took a couple of um, um, uh, scripture references and confessional quotes last time to remind us what it is we're talking about when we are talking about the church itself. I did put up a, uh, there is one of our own number in the PCA by Ed Clowney, uh, that book called The Church. If any of you are so inclined to look at any of these references. Um, that is that is a book that that describes the church 
as what it is, which is the assembly of believers throughout the scope of biblical revelation, meaning from Genesis to Revelation, there is a church. Uh, it comes into its cur- our current understanding in its current form uh, when Christ establishes the church, and you'll see the scripture reference there from Matthew sixteen eighteen, where uh, after the, uh, a certain portion of Christ's earthly ministry, he asks Peter, uh, who am I? And Peter confesses, you are the Son of God, the Messiah. And Jesus tells him, uh, and you're Peter. Uh, you're a rock, Petra, and on this rock I will build up my church. Not that he becomes the first pope, but that the confession of Christ as Jesus as Messiah is the rock upon which the church is built. Those that come before Jesus looking forward to the day of salvation and the Messiah's uh, earthly presence and those who come after Jesus, which is us looking back to his death, burial, and resurrection in the church. And just like I did last time, I was going to find the uh, Heidelberg Catechism, which we confessed from this morning, um, the uh, statement on the church, I believe it was 54, the way that the Catechism summarizes the scriptural teaching of what a church is, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? Catholic, you recall, means universal not Roman Catholic, as is down the street, but the universal church, that out of the whole human race, from the beginning to the end of the world, the Son of God, His Spirit and Word, gathers, defends, preserves for Himself unto everlasting life a chosen communion in the the unity of the true faith, and that I, and forever shall remain, a living member of the same. Beautiful language of uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. As was what we confessed this morning from the bulletin, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I belong to my faithful Redeemer and so forth. So, uh, recapping session one then, that church as we uh, come to know it uh, after Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, The church is synagogue-based because the first teachings of Christ are occurring in synagogues. So Jewish converts are in synagogues uh, with uh, uh, the beginnings of, of the church, with the first church being in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, as Scripture references. And then we looked at briefly at internal and external controversies. Those in the internal controversies uh, being particularly associated with Judaizers. They were in the synagogues. Here we have a Messiah. Well, in order to be a real Christian that believes this Jesus is the Messiah, you need to be circumcised like a Jew. And so the Judaizers began to try to impose the Mosaic law upon Christians. And in response, or upon believers at the time, and there were Gentile believers coming into the fellowship. And the response to that, would anybody venture an answer to the question, what was 
what was the response to that? Internal controversy? It shouldn't be required, but how did they settle that dispute? It was a church council. It was a Jerusalem council. It's in your Bibles in Acts chapter 15. All the folks who were um, believers in Christ and represented churches were gathered in Jerusalem for a council to settle a dispute. And this dispute uh, was settled here in, um, uh, in Acts chapter 15 when Peter stands up in this assembly of church leaders and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, so on and so forth. And the Jerusalem Council uh, determines that, no, you don't have to observe the Jewish law to be a Christian. That was particularly associated with, with circumcision. Then we also look briefly at the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Just before this, Nero, the Roman emperor, uh, who was a vile man of the highest order, burned a portion of Rome. There are various theories of why he did this. Some say he did it to make room for his own palace to be constructed. and uh, Some say he did it uh, just to rid the city of certain unsightly places. Nonetheless, there was a fire in Rome set by Nero. He blames it on the Christians. Small Christian communion in Rome was not liked. It wasn't that they were run out of the town or completely persecuted, but they weren't liked. It was easy to find a scapegoat, and he blamed it on the Christians. It was the Christians who set the fire. And then persecution began um, uh, under Nero. You know what the leader does, the people do. And you can look at it, whoever's sitting at the top of the hierarchy and leadership sets the tone for everything that comes under it. That's why it's so vital that those who are in positions of leadership in society or in the church or in any organization set an appropriate tone, whatever the context may be. Because people follow the leader typically. And, in, and, and so Nero's attitude towards Christians led to generalized persecution. Scattered, you know, you could kick a Christian and everybody's fine with it. In fact, they'll laugh, mock, what have you. Shortly after that, and in a... a um, uh, the, Christ, the Jewish, the Jews in Jerusalem. There's a whole backstory to this. There was a, a Roman governor of the area of Jerusalem who uh, disrespected Judaism, and the Jews went into revolt. And this first Jewish war resulted in the defeat of uh, Jerusalem and the destruction of what? The temple. The temple comes down, and in the process of 70 A.D., Christians uh, and Jews who had been sort of living together separated ways, parted ways. And there was a, 
a spreading. The Christians left. They got out of town. They got out of Jerusalem, and there was a, a real division between Christianity and Judaism. So I'm spending too much time on the summary to say that in this early time, all the apostles, uh, or most of the apostles, are still alive and still guiding the church and still teaching the church. Paul is going through his missionary journeys throughout uh, the Roman Empire. And ultimately, we uh, come to the end of the apostolic age. The last apostle in this time period is John. And he is said to have died in about the year 97 or 100. Uh, that's the last apostle. And then we move into today's uh, uh, quick lesson on the post-apostolic age. And let me follow up on two comments I made last time. Um, one was, there was, uh, I was trying to describe sheep, raising sheep. Where, who was here from the sheep raising description? I couldn't find my reference. So I was trying to s describe how, uh, and I can't even remember what the reference was to last time, other than sheep were dumb and stupid and they needed lots of guidance. But I, I had purchased some sheep to s get a sense of what it was like to be a shepherd and raise sheep. And um, the illustration I was using, they were so dumb, you'd just go out in the pasture and they'd be upside down and they can't get up on their own. The shepherd has to pick them up, right them, calm them down. And if that doesn't happen within a couple of hours or about a half a day, they'll die. So the shepherd has to be constantly watching these <laughs> sheep and go find the one that's not doing right. Well... That uh, position of being upside down, legs up, is cast down. That's when a sheep is cast down, when it is like that. And so the biblical reference being in the psalm, why art thou, and I can't remember the psalm number, why art thou cast down, uh, why, are you, my, why is my soul cast down? Um, you with me? That reference, does that ring? Why is my so the imagery is why am I utterly immobilized in my soul and spirit? Lord, come help me, save me, right me. Totally dependent. The other the other uh, loose end to clear up was that quote we were saying. For all, loosely paraphrased, for all who would call God their father, the church then is their mother, and. Sean said, Augustine said it. I couldn't remember because I didn't look up the quote. Jim was right. Uh, Cyprian said it, who was an early leader. But John Calvin reiterated it in his Institutes. He quotes Cyprian in the Institutes of the Christian Religion for all. Who, so, two, uh, two um, pieces of not trivia, but... Um, Loose ends to clean up. All right, so, uh, okay, here we go. I needed to go. Do you see that one, Heath? Oh, it's there. Okay, it went back. Sorry, I'm, I meant to show that slide with the map on it showing Paul's missionary journeys in the world we're dealing with uh, at that time. And this is a little better. I was trying to find a timeline 
Uh, you can obviously access these on the internet very easily when you're Googling around or thinking about this later today, which I know everyone will be doing. Um, you'll see a timeline of Jesus' earthly ministry, on, then the ministry of the, the early church there goes down. It connects it to the various emperors of Rome, and for those who like to look at timelines, uh, they're all over the internet. That early church then approaches the apostolic age with these characteristic elements of worship. Interesting that we had our sermon today on worship. Uh, the early church worshipped with these elements, and you see them there. Uh, the reading of scripture, exhortation and teaching, or we can associate that with preaching, singing, prayer, and I left one off the list. Sorry about that. What did I leave off the list? The sacraments, the observance of the Lord's Supper, uh, the, uh, the Eucharist. So we come into uh, this worshiping early church community in Rome, but that early church community uh, is in immediate conflict. We already mentioned the internal conflicts, but the external conflict with Rome itself. And they're in conflict in this way. Rome's religion was polytheistic. They had all kind of gods, and we've all studied the gods of Rome and the mythology of Rome probably in our schooling in one form or another. And there was no difference between being a citizen of a town and the god you worshipped in that town. Uh, they were... And Roman religion, this is a very simplistic explanation, was all about just doing the ritual. Just observing because you observe it and this is what you do. And each uh, town had its own kind of gods and then conquered territories may have particular gods that were assimilated. And so there's a pantheon of all these kinds of gods. Wherein the Christian religion, as it begins to spread, and well, the, Jew, the Jews already were monotheistic, and we know that, and they were tolerated in Rome. In fact, the Jews had certain legal protections. But as the Christians began to spread throughout the empire, through Greece, Turkey, and all these other places, as the, map, the map's gone, as as the faith spreads, the monotheistic Beliefs of Christians comes at immediate cross-purposes with the Roman Empire and its notion of religion. Not only that, Christian virtue becomes a point of conflict. Herein, um, the dignity of people. So Romans didn't practice abortion so much uh, as they practiced what they called infant exposure. An unwanted child uh, would just be set out in there uh, and exposed to the elements until it died. That's the way they treated. The Christians would go find those babies and collect them and raise them and nurture them and care for them. That's one element. Another element was generosity and forgiveness. Uh, we're going to look at the persecutions in just a moment, but the Christians um, 
uh, we're going to um, practice forgiveness even to those who persecuted them. Forgiveness and reconciliation. Whereas in the Roman culture, retribution, status, uh, ahead, that was the, the value of the day. Sexual ethics. We've heard stories about this. Um, the, the women were expected to be, if you were a wife and mother, now I'm really oversimplifying here. There's lots could be said about this. Uh, were expected to be home and be chaste, faithful people. The men could be like tomcats. They could go out and roam and satisfy their desires with other uh, women not of status, with children, with other men. It was chaos in the Roman world. Whereas the Christians, the Christian sexual ethic was faithfulness in marriage and chastity in non-marriage between a man and a woman. This was a point of conflict in the, in the empire. Uh, when the Christians gave, they gave to everybody. Now, the Roman world was, uh, if you were a Roman, um, you were going to be nice to your family and your friends. But the Christians were um, nice. To, nice is a bad choice of words. Were generous with everybody. Regardless, and I've already said enemies, um, their generosity was uh, displayed. So these are, there were other points of conflict. These are some. The Romans take this with great suspicion. Who are these people? What are their practices? And they're obviously in a very small minority in, in the kingdom. So... During this time of 100 to 300, uh, these would be... Why doesn't this go forward? Does that go? Okay. Alright. During this time, uh, two directions begin to occur in the church. Alright, the, the apostolic fathers have died away. There's a new generation that's taken over. In, um, in the church. And by the way, these churches are uh, governed individually. They're governed by uh, elders. Um, as referenced in Scripture, they are, their church polity is, is set up, we believe, like ours, is, uh, is set up. Is that still in the right place? Yes. There is... Uh, uh, widespread and intermittent persecution uh, is one direction, so there's a response to persecution, but also as the congregations uh, increase in number and geographic spread, there are internal heresies that arise. So that in the post-apostolic age that we would call the church fathers, they address two things. They address the persecution of the church, and they address the heresy of the church. And as we look, if I get my slide goes, we will see, yes, 
Okay, so these are the ones I've chosen. Now, there, 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 are lots, there are lots of these people. These are some of the most prominent. As you look there on the left-hand side, post-apostolic's out of place. But these are some of the key people, the key names, uh, that will address one of two things. Either trying to encourage Christians that are being persecuted, number one, or writing to the Roman emperor in defense of the faith, number two, or uh, thirdly, they are writing against heresy. Now on the right-hand side in the red, these are some of the names of Roman pagans who uh, write against um, Christianity. And we're going to look, that's where we're going to go now. And if we put them on a map, you'll see them like this. The ones in red are some Roman people that are, that are writing, speaking. Um, it, it's, like, um, it's like picking up your newspaper editorial. Nobody has a newspaper anymore. It's like pulling up your website editorial and reading, and there's somebody expressing opinions in there. These Christians are this, and these Christians are that, and the reason we're having hard times here is because these Christian people, da-da-da-da-da. Well, that spreads around, and that becomes the climate of the community. And that's what these people in red are doing. The people in gray there are the, uh, are the father, church fathers that are trying to combat this. So let us take them just a couple of slides. I just took three. I'm going to take three of the Roman critics, and I'm going to take four of the church fathers and summarize them thusly. There was a man named Marcus Fronto, born in what is Algeria today, being northern Africa. He accuses, he's a prominent guy, he's a sort of a community leader, says the Christians have orgies. Uh, he accuses them of this. And he has the ear of a couple of the emperors. And so he's whispering in the ear, you know, your problem's in the empire, these Christian people. And the emperors uh, receive that information and they develop their own biases against uh, Christian people. Uh, that would be Pius and Aurelius there. The second one you see on the list is uh, Lucian of Samosata, born in what would be today Syria, would be over on the right-hand side of the map, north of, uh, north of Israel. He becomes uh, uh, a satirist. He writes satire, biting satire. He becomes a speaker. So you, you've seen the pictures in your, uh, wherever, your history book or whatever with the, uh, uh, the uh, theaters, you know, every town had a theater. There's a lot of going on in these theaters. So he would make the, make his tour and, and through oratory deliver his satire. And this was entertainment of the day. Like going to, so he's delivering all of this. And he mocks Christian, ridicules them for their ignorance, their um, incredulity, their uh, their their low-class people, uh, you know, we don't need them, so he's a generally ridiculing Christians and what he does. And then the third one there is, uh, his name is Celsus. Uh, his biographical information is a little, a little bit sketchy, 
But he writes a book called The True Word, uh, which viciously attacks Christians. And that Jesus practiced sorcery and black magic, and these people were bad, and there's just uh, uh, terrible attacks and accusations on uh, Christians of the day. That's only three, and a super generalized summary to give a sense that there is within the Roman Empire lots of pushback or attack on Christians to set the mood. Now, as the empire begins to encounter difficulties in the mid-200s, and it does, and you know from your history, the Germanic peoples come down and they start getting attacked, and there's pressures on the empire. The, the emperors uh, begin to try to pull the, r- rally the, or reassert the Roman, the Roman way. And whereas persecution might have been isolated circumstances, nobody liked the Christians, you can kick them and nobody's going to flint and say a word. As, as the empire is challenged, then the, um, the, the leadership begins to try to reassert, make Rome great again. <laughs> and by doing there is systematic persecution arises. Whereas people are brought in and asked to renounce their faith in Christ, and the way they are, uh, to, can do this uh, is to sacrifice to one of the idols. This is a monotheistic... We just had a sermon on idols. There are no images in this sanctuary. We can... We can imagine that a first century, second century Christian placing their faith and trust in Christ is now asked to give a sacrifice to the city God, whoever, whatever, whoever that might have been. Some did. Some recanted their faith to stay alive. Because if you didn't do it, or thrown to the lions in the, if you were over around Rome in the Colosseum, or you were crucified. In many ways, uh, not many, four or five ways, some uh, pretty gruesome. Actually, the beheading was the best way to go because it's over and done. And later on in this period, the beheadings, they reserved those for uh, the upper class criminals because it was the nice way to die. And they reserved the more cruel punishments for, for Christians. So, some do recant their faith. This becomes a great controversy in the church because in time, the persecutions will subside. And these people want to come back to church. Come back into the fellowship. Good day. If a person recanted their faith, should they be permitted back in? This is something that has to be worked out within the church. Nonetheless, there are critics. And this word is uh, circulating. And it evolves from local isolated persecutions to systematic persecutions, a matter of policy of the Roman Empire. In fact, Servinius, the year 200, banned 
any Roman citizen from converting to Christianity. You cannot be a Christian uh, as the persecution goes forward. So, uh, given just a little taste of that, let's get a little taste of this. The early church fathers, the martyrs that we have here, the fathers, and most of them were martyred, died for their faith, for their refusal to recant, or for their writings that were supporting Christianity. We select, I just selected four. Um, actually, I selected three. I thought I had four. Uh, Justin Martyr, he was born in Shechem. Do you know where Shechem is? It's in your Bible. It's in, it's in the territory of Israel. He was born in Shechem. Um, he was a student, a young man. Do I have his year up there? Yeah, born in 100 A.D., post-apostolic age. He was a student and he was a searcher. He went to a lot of places searching, basically, what is truth is his, his question. He tries out Stoicism. Uh, he tried, by the way, there's a revival of Stoicism. I listened to a podcast. Uh, it's called The Art of Manliness. And that one of the podcasts the other day had a Stoic philosopher on. And, and some of the ideas are interesting ideas of how to approach life. Um, he tries out Stoicism and finds it lacking. He tries out Platonism and finds it lacking. He, uh, he talks with a, a peripatetic philosopher, and I looked that up, and I can't recall exactly what that is, but it was a philosophy of the school of philosophy of the day. One day in his mid, uh, let's just say early to mid-20s, he while he's on this search, he encounters a Syrian Christian old man on a beach. This is the story that's told. And the old man on the beach describe, basically witnesses to him, saying, Son, there are writings more reliable than Plato or the Stoics or any philosophy. And they have prophets, and they predicted things to come, and there's a Savior, and he, was, he witnesses to him. And uh, Justin Martyr ends up uh, converting in that way. As these persecutions rain down on the church, Justin Martyr, out of his faith, writes the first and second apology. Apology not meaning I'm sorry, but justification for Christianity. These texts are available to us today. They are very relevant to us today. Uh, he writes the apologies to the emperor of Rome, saying this is why we do what we do. This is our God. This is our justification for being. Please leave us alone. Please stop the persecution. First and second apology of Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr ends up in a dispute with a, a cynic philosopher in Rome uh, at some point later on in his life, and because of this disputation, he's martyred. He's killed. He's offered a chance to recant his faith. He does not do it. Just a martyr is killed. He leaves behind his record of first and second apology. 
The second one on the list there is Origen. Origen is born in Alexandria. That's on the northern coast of Egypt. And by the way, you see the geography of what we got here? It's all around. The Lord chose this time and place for Jesus and the spread of the gospel. We believe it to be providential. This moment in history, Roman roads facilitating spread. The Pax Romana for all bad things the Rome I mean the, the Romans did maintain the peace. So there was not chaos. You had the ability to move out in peace and operate in relative peace. This occurs down Alexandria on the south side of the Mediterranean there uh, in Egypt. Origen, he's born in Alexandria. He's born to a Christian family. When his father was, now Origen was a, uh, had a real, they all had zeal, I'm sure. He had a double portion. Uh, when his father was beheaded for his Christian beliefs, he gets caught up in the persecution. Origen's father, will you recant your faith? Will you just sacrifice to the idol? You can go away in peace. He did not do it. He was beheaded. Or his son, Origen, wants to die like his father. Uh, it grows his faith to the, such extreme that in order to avoid temptation, it is said he castrates himself, which he's later condemned for doing. That's uh, not a, was not a good practice. Nonetheless, Origen is a. Uh, how would you describe that? Uh, a real zealot uh, for his uh, for his faith. He writes contra Celsus. I wrote Celsius up there. Do you remember just one slide back? We had Celsus that wrote all that mocking stuff, that terrible attack. He writes contra Celsus. Uh, he writes against it, and this is published. Um, he's imprisoned, tortured, uh, and intentionally kept alive in the hopes that he might recant. Uh, fortunately for him, uh, Decius, the emperor that uh, imprisoned him, died first, and then he, uh, he was able to go. So he wasn't actually martyred in that way, but he died shortly thereafter. Finally on this list is Arrhenius. He's born in, uh, he's not born in Shechem. That's an error. Uh, that's a copy and paste error. And the second cell is a copy and paste error. But the third and fourth cells, uh, the third cell is not his works. He fought vigorously against uh, a heresy. Heresies begin to emerge in the church known as Gnosticism. Who has an understanding or an idea of what Gnosticism is? Come on. Secret knowledge. Yes. Uh, that you had to have, that the, the revelation of Scripture was not enough, that you had to have uh, secret, secret knowledge. And I had down at the bottom, I messed my slide up, down here at the very bottom is uh, Polycarp that I was going to quote. But Polycarp is another one of the church fathers who is martyred for his faith. He's the bishop of uh, 
Smyrna, I believe, or the elder over pastor of Smyrna. And uh, Polycarp, at the age of three, is asked to recant his faith. And um, uh, I've served the Lord 83 years. He's never failed me. I will not recant my faith. The, uh, the person doing the trying of him says, um, you can go free, otherwise you see these beasts right here are ready to, or we're going to burn you at this, I think it was burned at the stake. We're going to kill you. He said, it's an honor. It's an honor for me to die for my faith. Let it be. And Polycarp is, uh, is martyred. So that is a very, very, very simplistic uh, way uh, or, or re, re recitation of a few of the Roman um, critics and some of the early church fathers and their stories. Yes, sir. Justin, no, he he the term martyr. He was actually Justin of something or another, and after he's martyred, he assumes the word mar Justin martyr. So heresies emerge within the church, and we're just about to wrap up. Heresies emerge in this time as well. I've listed four there. The special knowledge is already mentioned on the bottom of the list with the Gnostics or Gnosticism. By the way, can anyone think of a of a uh, movement today, or yeah, today I guess. Sorry. Yes, yes, you could count that. You could also put not necessarily a Christian heresy, but a but a Gnostic uh, approach, uh, New Age stuff, where you get special kind of special insights. Uh, in some ways, you can watch. Uh, you can see this characteristic in charismatic people. You get a special word, a special thing, uh, which also relates to uh, Montanus there, uh, where there's extra-biblical prophecies. Uh, this is very prevalent in our day. If you watch a, if you watch a prosperity gospel person um, and you start hearing people say, well, the Lord told me this, or the Lord told me, now not, yes, the Lord can speak, but when that, when that starts coming out, the Lord told me to tell you <laughs> uh, prophecies. I'm pro- the biblical revelation is the totality of what we need uh, for, uh, for truth in that regard. Marcion rejected the Old Testament. Any group you can think of, uh, he saw the New Testament God as nice and loving, and the Old Testament God as brutal, killing. Any group you can. You have any Church of Christ friends? They will de emphasize that Old Testament and emphasize the New Testament. Uh, that's a one simplistic way of looking at it. So, so those heresies emerge, and they all have to be. Uh, combated or um, uh, pushed back against, and that will come up in some of our future uh, future classes. I have two more slides. If this will change, 
Those were the general persecutions, as I mentioned, localized. Um, uh, we've already covered that. Um, the, the generalized, localized persecutions uh, turn into systematic policy of the empire. And I tried to bring it down to some, what, what can we learn from some of this? God's works, these are, these are my thoughts after thinking through this and reflecting on what we've been talking about for the last 30 or 45 minutes. God's works of redemption are not painless. If you can consider God extracting a believer from a fallen nature in a fallen world and sanctifying them unto Christ, the process is not painless. And there is suffering uh, in the midst of that. Another thing, there's an inherent conflict between God's truth and a culture not rooted in God's truth. There is an inherent conflict. We have a lot of conversations in our circles, and every church has it in their circles. How do we engage culture? How do we, we, we must recognize there will be an inherent conflict in who we are as a people and a general culture that is not rooted in, uh, in God's truth. The seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. Persecution causes the church to grow. And we don't seek persecution for persecution's sake. But God redeems the blood of those martyrs to generate life uh, in the church and the spread of the faith. And uh, directing ourselves to the doctrinal component, the church must be ever vigilant in guarding doctrinal truth. Ever vigilant. Heresy creeps in in the most subtle of ways. The devil is a very crafty being. And the church is a spiritual house that is continually under attack. In which Jesus promises the gates of hell will not prevail. Nonetheless, the gates of hell will be on the church. And the church must, in its holy mission, guard itself in its, uh, in its uh, purity, in its truthful purity. Are you all okay with those, those items? Would anybody add anything to that list? That list, I don't know why I'm not synced up here. Where'd my list go? Any other, any other observation or conclusion from your own study or thought about these things? And in our own day, you know, we get anecdotal stories from uh, out of China, which is continually under persecution, and the growth of the church in China, and there are other places across our globe that are persecuted. And somebody asked last time, you know, what are you, what is some of the things, you, uh, ob observation you glean? I can't remember how the question was asked, but one is that yes, uh, we have troubles in our own land and in our own culture with our faith and culture. But we don't have 
anything. We've never experienced anything remotely even close to how these uh, early Christians lived. So we'll conclude with this and go. Um, the suffering is a very real part of our lives. Our faith life, our congregational life, and our individual lives. We read the Heidelberg Catechism this morning um, that God has so ordered his works of providence in our hearts, in the believer's heart, and in the believer's life, that not a hair can fall from your head without his loving hand uh, being a part of it. Nonetheless, it doesn't preclude suffering. And so we end with the words of Peter here. It should not surprise us. We should not be surprised. I'm surprised in my family life when this circumstance comes. I'm like, what? Where did that come from? I, this shouldn't be. The Bible corrects me and says, Bobby, you should not be surprised. Do not be surprised in the fiery trouble when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Don't suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory. Not be ashamed. You know, some of our suffering results in shame. The Scripture says don't be ashamed, but rejoice. So here we have an example from our brothers and sisters out of antiquity, um, of the martyrs of suffering for the faith, trying to live their faith in the Roman world. I hope there's something there that's worthwhile to uh, consider as you go about your week.